Oh, well, that took long enough. Uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> Evening. Oh, golly. Sorry about that. Uh, mild, mild chaos. Can everyone, uh, can everyone hear me? Are you there? Um, let's do this thing. Uh, oh, golly. Uh, hopefully you're, you're hearing sound. I'm here. Hello, hello, hello. Ah, uh, yes. All right, it's another newsy, catch-uppy one, because we've, we've had a pile, I had a few pre-records in a pile. Um, so hello everyone, it's live. Look, I can even prove it by uh, going gigantic face. Hello, it's me, yo. Um, let's do this thing, shall we? Let's go for a bit of, uh, well, to be honest, let's let's start with the the um, the COVID stats uh, as uh, fresh off the off the conveyor belt this morning. Uh, first thing to point out is uh, I've updated. So this bit, I've updated the this. This used to be uh, road transport. I've now updated it to just the cars and taxis column, because uh, all the others are about people moving. You know, cycling is people mostly. Uh, the the bus services are and the uh, sorry bus services are and uh, and national rail uh, is is just ridership. It's not any freight stuff. It's just looking at passengers. So um, so it makes sense, actually, to have all of this as passengers. So I've updated this. I've also updated the title to COVID-19 Travel Recovery. Um, so, yes, so I've updated that. And, and you can see a variety of things going on. Firstly, strike time. Uh, the most important thing about the strikes... Okay, there's a bit of a... There's a, there's a disconnect here, but that's just because the, the, we, we're missing that data. But um, you can see that the strikes had a very short-term impact. Uh, hopefully, when we get the rest of the the data here, this this nice data here, um, it'll show that the the rebound continues back to where it was, like that. Um, but uh, you can see that there's been no, you know, there has been no lasting significant impact from the strikes thus far. A load of new ones have been announced, but we'll get to that momentarily. Um, and if we zoom in, you can see you can see that kind of the, the impact there they've had. That week basically was a big drop uh, in in rail ridership. Th these numbers are rolling seven day averages. I think are they, or have I not updated them as such? Oh no, no, they're not. These ones are. These ones are not. Um, so you can see there's been this this sort of the the, the strikes have hit hard that that week, uh, but we've climbed back. And this is the provisional, uh, this is obviously the kind of largely provisional data that will get revised upwards. So there's a good chance we'll be back to where we were before, which is around 90%. So that's the COVID data. Um, I probably need to put in one of these yellow things to explain the strikes, don't I? Um, yeah, put one in like here. Uh, yeah, I'll get to that. In any case, uh, that's that. Next thing. Oh, actually, that's it. That, that's I'm going to do the news after the the, the intro. So, um, yeah, let, let's let's get cracking, shall we? Without further ado, welcome to tonight's Rail Matter. City 225 fades away. Uh, it's not an LNER one, and no, it's not an Intercity 225. It's not a Class 91 being chomped up at Rotherham either. Um, thanks, Raphael. Uh, oh, actually, no, it's Hazels. Thanks, Hazels, for the reference. So, uh, okay, firstly, the news, but also uh, Raphael's asked, uh, what are the regular waves in cars and taxis? Uh, it's just weekend versus weekday um, cycles. Um, so, uh, oh, crikey. The first joint tune-in. Uh, Kate Pangborn is here. Crikey. Well, uh, there's... Uh, oh, there's... 
Uh, da -da -da, here is some for a bit for our first joint tuning. Warmed up with a bit of Metro, yes or no, and what I had to say about Hardigan. Yeah, the Hardigan roundabout. What a waste of time that was. Anyway, the news. Uh, no, you haven't missed the news. The news is about it's it's long news and it's post. I'm going to potentially start bringing the news back into post credits again. I, I don't know. I, I you know I like I like um, jazzing around with things. In any case, the news. Um, some first of all, some Pratt on Pratt carnage, which is fun. This is this is off weird like right wing version of Twitter. Uh, but what's funny about this is is how much it's just fun to just look at these idiot the two idiots um becoming angry with each other. So I mean there are lots of fun telling things in here. Firstly, it's a reminder that Elon Musk's fortune is entirely built off the back of state subsidies and and like tax breaks and and also you know he's not a self-made man. He's just lobbied hard for tax breaks and for lots of uh, government cash. As with all tech bros, uh, strongly recommend everyone goes and reads uh, Paris Marx's book on um uh, tech Futurism for Transport, Road to Nowhere. It's very good. Uh, go read it. Um, Paris Marx's book is excellent. Anyway, uh, Donald Trump says, uh, When Elon Musk came to the White House asking me for help on all of his many subsidized projects... Uh, actually, you know what's funny is this doesn't read like Trump. This isn't like a Trump tweet. Very bad. Very, very disappointing. Very bad. Very bad, man. Uh, actually, it's, it's kind of disappointingly un-Trumpian uh, in the way that it's been written, almost like a statement. Um, anyway, yeah, it's just like... Uh, whether it's electric cars that don't drive long enough. Uh, oh, yeah, he's saying for help with all his many subsidized projects, whether it's electric cars that don't drive long enough, driverless cars that crash, or rocket ships to nowhere. I absolutely love it. Just absolute body slam from Donald Trump to Elon Musk here. Uh, without, which without which subsidies, uh, he'd be worthless. And telling me how he was a big Trump fan and Republican, I could have said drop to your knees and beg, and he would have done it. I just absolutely love this. It's so funny. I just... I. I absorbing all of the energy of this 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 prat begging to just just saying what he, whatever he has to say to just become richer uh and just this guy just the absolute just just this guy just he has no principles and doesn't care and just loves to be just to feel like he's number one that's all he cares about is feeling like he's number one so get these two in a room together and oh my god yeah it's great um yeah love this um i, I like this it's it's great um so Oh, yeah, that. Um, Donald Trump. Anyway, so the, the the things to take away from this is just the key reminder that that Musk's uh, money comes from gr him groveling with whoever's in power. Um, and he's unhappy at the moment because whoever's in power isn't paying him much attention. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah, abolish the Treasury is now a policy of a potential uh, PM. Admittedly, not a very nice person. Kevin Badenoch, uh, Badenoch is not a very nice person at all. Um, but... Uh, she has announced that she would break up the Treasury if she became Prime Minister. Um, I mean, admittedly, her version of abolish the Treasury is to just bring all the power into number 10 like everything else, which is bad. Um, but it, it, the point is that the abolishment of the Treasury is very much a mainstream policy position at this point. So um, people really need to... Uh, people really need to start paying paying attention to my uh, abolish the Treasury hashtag. And in fact, um, uh, Stein? Stein? Uh, formerly of the ONS, I think, possibly still of the ONS, um, wrote a Guardian piece about this this year, I think, in May. Uh, so maybe we get um, maybe we get them on uh, to talk about it and talk about what the abolishing the treasury might actually look like. In any case, yeah, uh, Kemi Badenoch uh, has um, uh, has announced that uh, that she'll break up the treasury of PM. So there we go. As uh, Exchequer Secretary, I saw firsthand the barriers to economic growth. We need to change the way the treasury works. Um, her Office for Economic Growth would be reportable to the PM with all depart departmental spending passing through it. 
So basically what she's just described is Treasury, but moved under the control of PM to avoid the classic number 10, number 11 battle. Um, she wants to inject stronger democratic accountability into spending plans. So, so everything she's describing is bad, um, but fundamentally uh, the point is that it's becoming a policy of the Treasury. And I like this because if this makes Treasury get a little bit bloody nervous that their, that their existence is not an eternal fact of, uh, uh, you know, an eternal singularity of truth, then maybe they'll bugger off a bit. So, um, yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I like this. It's, it's, it's good. Anyway, um, yeah, it's now a policy of potential PM, so noted. Uh, right. Oh, there's, this was a fun tweet. Bart um, uh, did a little thread trying to explain why they have non-standard track gauge. And to be fair, they didn't say this was the actual reason. They just said this is the, the kind of the theory, that they, the clearest theory they've got was based on a, on, on a report done by uh, Parsons Brinkerhoff. Uh, which is nonsense. I have to say, having read through that, that, that um, having had a quick flick through that report, it looks like absolute nonsense. Uh, I've got a reasonable amount of experience of looking at um, wind loading, blowing trains over, and the centre of gravity of these vehicles will be so low that the likelihood of them being blown over, even if it was standard gauge track, is just incredibly low. It's just not so it's just nonsense, and I I'm, I think it's all about politics and about the fact that a wider track gauge prevents their train you know their tracks being bought or used for freight or bought you know by one of the the kind of the the class ones or whatever it is. Uh, I think they were nervous about that. But what it ultimately meant is a system that is very difficult to upgrade. Uh, it's it's difficult to buy trains for, and generally just a bad you know standard gauge track is useful for a re- it's it's a good thing for a reason. So anyway, the the logic is from the dumpster. Uh, that report is might well be the reason why it happened, but that's that's really just a very skin deep reasoning actually the bigger reasons will be um political underneath that um indeed so uh, interesting little thread though uh, as as i replies to it so go in and find that shall i make my miniaturized face appear I, I have the technology hello everyone um right this thing uh yes this is exactly as stupid as it looks i've seen a few renders of this it was on dzine uh and uh it's it's just yeah it's exactly as stupid as it looks this is Firstly, just a horrend- you're never going to get a safety case to work for this if it goes any faster than a bicycle. And also, it's the size of a car, so it's going to have a capacity to match. Like, this, this is useless. Just just run a tram. If, if you can justify this thing, then why... Well, it's, it's just... Ah. To be fair, this follows a similar logic to, the, to the, uh, the urban BLR, which we'll get to. But yeah, this thing, thanks for sending me it. It is very stupid. Very, very silly. Um... Very silly. Um, right. The other thing. Are you a young person? Because you've potentially got goodies because uh, a a musical artist who I'll freely admit I've never heard of before called H uh, is collaborating with a, an energy drink company, Relentless, a good way to ruin your uh, cardiovascular system. Um, but, but the collaboration with H and Relentless to provide free train tickets to under 25s this summer. I don't exactly know what the limitations are, but click on, go, go to the website, just search HS2, which I think is quite funny. HS2, hey. Uh, I don't think HS2 have had any involvement in this. Oh, I'd be very surprised. But in any case, um, uh, you can see what they've done. They've done a little like classic British rail sort of board here. So you know, the, the H knocking out of the park. I don't know who H is. I don't know what music they create. It's probably fun, you know. The, the the kids these days are pretty cool. They're all right. The kids, they're doing all right. Um, I mean, you know, despite everything. Uh, so yeah, free train tickets. If you're under twenty five, and which I know quite a few of you are watching this, uh, then you might have free train tickets somehow. Go find out and tell me about it and, and whether this actually works. Um, I don't think this is H from Steps. I think this is H off of uh, Gen Z. 
In any case, goodies. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah, here's the tweet. Sorry, here's H. Official H. Yeah. Uh, hashtag without limits. I don't know. But H-S2.com, as in A-I-T-C-H-S2.com. Uh, go there and, and find things out. But you get free travel to under 25, so you can go and look at festivals, concerts, cultural events, and generally have a nice, have some fun. This is great. Uh, love it. It's good stuff. What else? Oh, talking of other nice things, I'm starting with some nice news. Uh, it may not last this way. Um, is it? Is it? Is it just? Is it just like travel vouchers for a competition? Is it not actually? Is it not actually a widespread giveaway? Oh, well, it's a bit like the bus news, which I didn't put in here. Which is that there's going to be a bus. Ca- there's going to be a limit on f- bus fees of two quid, upper cap of two quid on all bus fees. How that actually works in practice, uh, I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, that's separate news, which I couldn't get to the bottom of exactly how that works, so I haven't included it here. Any, anywho, uh, yeah, the, the the Barnardos have been doing this for ages, which is where you go and stand on the top of the fourth bridge, uh, and it's an awesome opportunity, and the tickets are all sold out, so, <laughs> so none of us can do it. If you have got a ticket, brilliant, um, but they're very, very limited supply, and they're all, all, all for charity. Um, so... What else? What else have we got here? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we have got here, uh, me needing to just slightly adjust my graphics. There we are. It's, it's a bit better, isn't it? Oh. Um, what have we got going on? Uh, population, the census, the census data is out. There's loads to unpick from the census data. Uh, loads and loads and loads. Uh, one of the interesting things is about the changes in population, the movement in population. And, and we're seeing patterns. Well, we're seeing the um, the kind of the the... the the de-ruralization of Wales, so seeing seeing growth in the in the city, but actually generally it looks like the population is just of Wales is just is just kind of decreasing, uh, either from people leaving or, uh, uh, likewise, ruralization of all these areas is decreasing. You know, uh, all these fringe kind of areas. Uh, this this is a bit interesting, but again, you're like there's scummy, lots of places decreasing, uh, whereas we're seeing the urban areas. Uh, increasing population and some of the semi-urban areas as well so it's not just in the center center of london we've seen some depopulation depopulation as well we've seen the the kind of more vibrant outer areas of london increasing population but fundamentally the urban areas of britain are increasing in their population quite sizably this is just a continuing trend uh towards fewer and fewer people in 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 kind of basically constituencies are getting less and less fair urban constituencies that are broadly you know, substantially uh kind of left-wing and and, and progressive uh, are being less uh, represented less and less well whereas uh, old crusties with with um uh, this is not you know this, this is not a venn diagram it's not a complete venn diagram I'm merely describing the the general trend but the, the 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 rural areas where you have older people who are less interested in the future uh, are depopulating there's fewer of them uh, and they're being more represented so their votes are worth more their their votes are worth substantially more than than people in in, in urban areas and this is a problem it's a problem for social cohesion it's generally a pan a, a, uh, it's generally a generational gap there um uh yeah and it's a problem for our democracy and and is it getting fixed anytime soon well not not under this government and to be honest not under a changing government either uh we one of the ways to fix this is through proportional representation and other ways that we need to redraw boundaries of constituencies even more to to even them up in terms of population 
But another way to do it is understanding why these shifts are happening. You know, why these shifts continue to happen. Well, the real the reality is, is people have a more sustainable lifestyle when they're living in urban areas. Like, you know, it's a much more sustainable way to live. It's for humans to all be close together because we don't have to drive everywhere. We can walk and get get close to each other, uh, hang out without, uh, you know, and, and, and public transport works better when we have higher densities. So this is an interesting one. Anyway, lots of other census data. I'm sure loads of people in here um, uh, that can pick out some of the interesting stuff. Um uh, yeah, massive growth in Exeter, and this is indeed the one down here is Exeter overspill. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there's there's all kind of but there's all all the kind of the urban areas that that are kind of at the bottom there, uh, along from Exeter as well. It's quite quite an expansion. Um, in any in any case, um, census data, lots of interesting stuff. I'm sure to pick out of there. Uh, it'll be very interesting. Similar sorts of data is the change in CO2 emissions in London. This is kind of an interesting little graphic that popped up that I thought was interesting, which is, okay, so you have massive reduction in emissions in the centre of London, uh, in these kind of, these areas in London, massive reduction in, in, in road transport emissions. You see an increase of, um, uh, you know, increases in Harrow, Enfield, Merton, Croydon, Bromley, Bexley and, and Havering. Uh, particularly substantial in Havering and Bexley, major increases, a 10% increase in road transport emissions. Uh, this is not good. Um, you know, what's this related to? What is what? Why is this increasing? What's changing to result in this increase in 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 road usage? Well, um, have a look at public transport provision in these areas is what I would suggest doing, and see how it's been impacted by. Um, and this is twenty. This is twenty nineteen versus twenty sixteen. So it's a, a change over three years. Uh, change over three years. What level of you know? It's, it's just interesting to think about. You know, why why is that happening? Why are these patterns happening? You know, thoughts on a postcard. But it's very interesting to pick that out. Just thought it's uh, an interesting little thing to look at. Um, talking of uh, calamities, this leads to the bigger picture in the UK, which is that the um, the Climate Change Commission um, have brought out their um, uh, their progress report on on the, what the government is getting up to in terms of. Um, you know, how government is doing on net zero delivery and bearing in mind that none of the, almost all of the, I think, in fact, pretty much all of the uh, the, the prime ministerial contender or the, the, the Tory party leadership contenders are just either body slamming or ignoring net zero. Uh, very likely that they'll be pulling away from, from it. Um, you know, very likely that they'll be either watering down or entirely pulling away from net zero as a target for the country. We are on a slide towards kind of full like ethno-fascism, just as a reminder to everyone. Um, uh, yeah, and the, the Climate Change Committee has been saying shocking, devastating indictment, abject failure. Those are the phrases that are being used in this report. Uh, James Murray from, um, uh, yeah, coming in business screen to, to kind of uh, point out some of these things. But uh, yeah, pretty damning um, lack of, of, of delivery on net zero. And there's some other things. Simon Evans here, Dr. Simon Evans, picking out some interesting points, which is... Um, um, the the fact that gas being more expensive is is helping the UK reach its climate goals by accident, uh, and also could yeah so that's fine, but um, yeah reaching climate goals saves the UK a lot of GDP if that is achieved. But the, the, the it's found that the UK government strategy is just simply not going to deliver net zero. Uh, only eight out of fifty key indicators are on track, and there are no credible plans for sixty one percent of those greenhouse gas emissions cuts. Funny that. Yeah, it's almost as if that's the thing that I've been saying the whole time, and lots of us have been. Um, so there's this credible policies thing here, which has this green level to like achieving net zero, um, which is only a close fraction of the gap to meeting the targets, the targets being here. But the reality is that the current delivery pathway, what's actually being delivered, is as bad as it possibly could be. Could be. Uh, there it is. Uh, not, not good at all. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, 
Oh wait, I'm doing this the wrong way around, isn't it? Sorry, forgive me. This is the this is the zero here. Hello to everyone watching Rail Now for the first time. This is how we roll. So the delivery pathway here in red is the, is what government is saying it can do to reach net zero by 2050. Sorry, the green here is actually what's being proposed in terms of um in terms of the actual policies, and you can see uh that's that's not net zero. That, that's not zero zeros down here. This is this is zero zero. Uh, this is not zero. Um. You can see we're just not not achieving it. Uh, it's not happening. So this is not good, folks. Not good at all. Um, yeah. What else have we got? We've also got. Oh yeah, it's the CCC's actual report themselves, which I should have gone into high resolution. This is a pretty poor resolution image I took off Twitter. We'll do. We'll go through the report at some point. I think. Um, you can see here. So this is our one that we that we we care a lot about, which is surface transport. Yeah, surface transport. You can see they're they're talking about credible plans. These credible plans, by the way, are uh, EVs. So uh, uh, not credible, frankly. But anyway, EVs. Uh, you see some risks here to a substantial amount of the savings that they're quoting and significant risk and insufficient plans for quite a sizable chunk else. Uh, the other issue, so they're saying credible plans for electricity supply. Well, that's easy. Electricity supply is easy. Um, everything else, shocking. So buildings just very, you know, all at risk, pretty much entirely at risk of sorting that out. Manufacturing and construction, likewise. Uh, agriculture and land use, ditto. And um, engineered removals, which is uh, fiction, by the way, uh, is, is just significant risk base. It's not happening. So, yeah, energy is easy. That's easy. We can do that. Transport, this green here is going to start getting smaller as the CCC realized that the EV thing ain't working out. So, yeah, we'll see. But anyway, that's that. That's where we're at. Not not good, frankly. Not good. Oh, talking of which, uh, it's another thing that came out. Uh, Wendy Morton, the, 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 the rail minister, uh, told regional business leaders uh, that um, changes in travel patterns, inverted commas, um, means that the uh, Ely North Junction upgrade may be put on hold. Except that, of course, this is all about... Uh, oh, there's lots of good stuff going on. Actually, I'll go to that. Deirdre, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to your comment in a second. Uh, lots of good... Uh, you know, uh, rail freight, sorry, is 120% and climate. It's like massive. It's, it's, actually, maybe it's not quite that much. But anyway, if Simon's in the chat, you can tell us. But we are... You know, rail freight is well above pre-COVID levels. Rail freight is in absolute uh, rude health. And Ely North Junction is one of the main, if not the main, freight bottlenecks for the whole country because of how much comes in at Felixstowe. So this needs fixing, just absolutely needs fixing. Essentially, at all costs, needs fixing. And yes, it's very messy because of all the flat ground and the level crossings and the fact that it's on a pudding uh, geologically. But fix it. It needs fixing at any cost. This, this is a proof of how inadequate our business case modeling and the use of business case modeling in the first place is for something like this. This just needs fixing at any cost. It needs to be a case of... Uh, how much does it how, you go to the engineers how much does this cost to fix you go through and look at and make sure that they're not taking the piss and then you build it no matter what that number says it just needs to happen and it's not happening um it's just yeah very very frustrating 450 million quid sounds like a lot of money it is not a lot of money given that a flipping roundabout got got rebuilt for a billion quid recently uh, i don't you know on on the a14 or whatever it was the a1 or whatever it was black cat wasn't it done for like the best part of a billion quid 450 million quid for this rail upgrade is nothing, absolutely nothing. Oh, so I'm getting angry about that. To, to pause my anger, I'm going to go big face and then answer some questions. What have we got here? Chuck all your comments in at me. Uh, right, Michael C has asked, uh, do I think Crossroad could help some of the emissions um, problems in East London? Potentially, yeah, potentially. Um, uh, further reason for Silver Tunnel is a bad idea, absolutely. Um, 
Uh, East London's rubbish from north to south rail links. Yeah, that's very true. Another rail crossing would be really good. You know, rather than the Silvertown Tunnel, they could have just built another rail crossing and actually connected it up through, you know, extend, they could extend the overground down from Barking Riverside and then tie in with some underground connections, that overground connections that way, sorry, and, and build it up. Me and Tim were out there um, over the weekend having a look. Um, so let's see what else. Uh, Deirdre, yes, frustratingly, the census was taken at a time in, when those in central London with second homes had moved to the southwest in panic. Yeah, for sure. But also, like, the census was taken and there were not options to say this is a problem, major problem with the census data that's made me very angry is that the, the census data said, don't tell us what you would normally be doing, just say uh, what you're doing now, which is like, yeah, but in the middle of a pandemic, everything's to hell. What a strange way to conduct a, such an important data collection exercise. Yeah, that was. Serious problem. Uh, thanks, Deirdre. Yeah. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Uh, let's see. Oh, there's lots of interesting conversations going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, aren't EVs bigger than normal cars? They are generally because they're often SUVs because the, the, the car industry is just going for um, build as big and as destructive a car as you possibly can because that means you're selling more car and making more profit. Um, I've just noticed that, o that OBS has already put on my mouth delay. I'm already delayed a bit. Anyway, sorry about the sound and mouth delay thing. I haven't quite worked out why OBS does this. Uh, thoughts on a postcard. Anyway, yeah. Um, right, let's get rid of my face and go back to back to back to the news. What else are we learning about? Uh, oh yeah, HS2. What is left of HS2 is being wrecked. Yes, uh, two stations we're going to pick on. Euston, very interesting piece in architect in um, architecture journal, which was that um, there were reports that um, HS2's ambitions for a um, for a new Grimshaw design station at Euston were downgraded from world-class to highly functional and affordable, according to board papers. Yeah, they've gone for, let's make this incredible and good because it's, you know, 120 years worth of the pathway to the rest of the country um, from London. Uh, no, what's happened is it's been horribly downgraded to a uh, shopping mall with some platforms attached to it. Um, highly functional and affordable. Uh, yeah, a bit of a euphemism for hor horrible. Uh, the rail group was lambasted for years over its indecision on Euston, which has led to all that common becoming the temporary ter London terminus, blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, this is all because of government scrimping and saving and because of oversight development that shouldn't be happening. Uh, huge impact on uh, the way that HS2 will feel to passengers. It should be a grand entrance, and uh, it frankly will not be. It will not feel good. It will not feel grand. It will feel like it's been dumped as an afterthought, and it will be dominated by horrifying oversight development that will make a right mess of the of the whole site. The thing that should take priority here is the fact that it is a rail connection in and out of central London. That's the thing that should take priority. It's a massive transport hub. The thing that should take priority is the transport element of this. And what is taking priority is oversight development to attempt to ameliorate costs when it's just a billion quid. Who cares? It's just not a large amount of money. I'm sorry. A billion quid is not a large amount of money when you're talking about 120 years or more, really. Let's face it. And it's all stuff that'll have to be reversed because Houston will have to expand and they'll have to build. It's just horrifying. It's just a real mess. Again, it's scorched earth. It's it's make sure that you can't actually do anything better. Lock in the half-arsed, uh, half-words attempt. Very frustrating. Um, yeah, very disappointing. Um, the other thing, of course, is that all these big changes mean that all the plans for taking spoil out by rail have been obliterated and now TfL are being hammered and told to move cycle lanes and reduce cycling provision in order to allow all the lorries with all the spoil to move around. It's just so many levels, dreadful government just government getting involved where they really shouldn't be. Andrew Gilligan, I am when when Boris goes, Gilligan will go, and that is the main benefit of Boris going. Uh, but he ain't gone yet. 
He ain't going yet. Anyway, right, what else? Oh, yeah, of course, Manchester. Uh, engineer behind Manchester Underground Station plan labels HS2 dismissal as not logical. Yeah, this is talking about the fact, it's a, th- a point that lots of us have pointed out on Twitter, which is um, HS2's option comparison report. It, it's good if you consider that um, node three thing. So basically, like, you've got the you've got the, 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 the airport station, you've got this coming up here, and then you have this sort of, uh, the thing here, this is the, the station sort of box here where the station is going to be, Manchester Piccadilly Station. And this up here is, is Node 3, so-called Node 3. Uh, down here is the, uh, is the air, uh, airport uh, station. Um, and this stupid Node 3 is because they're, they're doing their silly scorched earth thing into, into, um, uh, across into uh, Stanage Tunnel. When actually what this should be is, is following the existing rail alignment up, up towards the... Um, the kind of Calder Valley, and then and then at that point it can curve off and join the M62 uh, alignment up there, which is where NPR should go to get up towards Bradford. So that should be where NPR would be going, uh, but because government's going for its like daft, uh, its daft sort of uh, up, up to sort of Stanage Tunnel uh, sort of scorched earth, make sure that nothing good ever gets built proposal. It's locking in a much worse uh, alignment for where the, the sort of underground station is uh, kind of would be. So uh, it's basically they're stating it will cost a lot more because they're deliberately choosing a stupid option as to where the where the line will go. Uh, for me, this is potentially why they've chosen Stanage is to make sure that the underground station looks like it's too expensive at Piccadilly. It's absolutely shocking. Um, so, yeah, really... Uh, very frustrating and and report after report is coming through the nc i'm being quoted a lot charlotte cox is quoting me a lot on on the manchester evening news and others lots of us are getting lots of engineers not just me are getting involved in saying that this is absolutely the wrong choice by the way i do not support the hs2 phase 2 bill phase 2b bill at this point until this is an underground station and while that stupid node 3 and, and stupid connection towards stanage exists as part of the plans i do not support HS2's connection to Manchester. I think those plans should be opposed until the until it's corrected, until it is, the plans are corrected and, and they incorporate a proper connection across to Bradford. So at the moment, I oppose HS2's uh, hybrid bill for Phase 2B, which might be a strange thing as, as probably one of the, the UK's loudest proponents for HS2, right? Uh, I won't. My threshold of uh, I, I was happy to support the change to Sheffield from Meadowhall, even though I thought it was the wrong decision. I thought Meadowhall was the right decision, but that felt like a compromise that I could cope with to deal with the local politics. This, no, too far. Uh, they've lost me. Um, talking of other plans that are not that, that don't match words with cash, um, the the cycling and walking infrastructure strategy two. So it's like risk two, but for for cycling and walking. Uh, it's been published. It's got a, a load of kind of general broad themes about increasing the percentage of walking and cycling. Fine, but it does not provide the cash to match those. You know, it just says lots of big things, which is you know partly useful. But there's no the, the cash that's being asked for is not nearly is is is, is not being uh, matched by what Treasury is providing. Funny that. Yeah. Um, let's go big face and answer some more questions. So what else are people saying? Let me go up here. Um, the census could uh, David Shepard is saying the census could easily have had a second column to collect data for COVID changes agreed yet yeah. uh, Dave says still hoping for York I don't care where the GBHQ G, uh, the BR2 HQ ends up because it's going to be a, fla- a building with a flag on it an empty building with a flag on it anyway so it doesn't really matter um, uh, yep uh, Martha is pointing out that of course it was too good to be true that the Troys would actually deliver infrastructure properly yep of course 
Uh, absolutely. Let's see. Jack Elliott. They're forcing the hand of people in the future to build the London high-speed through station. <laughs> yeah, well, quite. Uh, that is, uh, for more on that, see the previous episode on the HS1 and HS2 link. Uh, maybe we'll do another episode where we actually look specifically at that. It's going to feed into my a future episode coming up where I list off my top 10 slash possibly top 11 uh, UK infrastructure mega pro- railway mega projects. That's a future episode, by the way. Tease on that one. That should be fun, right? Um, let's see. Do, 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 do. Uh, Route W12. That's a good, uh, that's a very fun uh, YouTube name. Uh, will a change in current leadership uh, change anything for HS2? Probably not, no. Uh, Michael C. The other thing is that they've got the alignment as having a massive tunnel underneath Manchester rather than from the original alignment. Yeah, that's kind of what I was referring to. That node 3 means they have to have a completely new alignment rather than relying on the existing infrastructure corridor that was a four-track corridor. It runs quite nicely. The, the proposed NPR route did, did that. It followed the Calder, the Calder line, the, the lines up to towards um, Summit Tunnel, the old route over the Pennines. It breaks off those and goes over the M62, but, the, but, the, but it actually... Um, that was the route that it followed, and it's the route that I proposed before I saw the NPR plans. That was the route that I actually proposed as well. Um, so, who's suggesting this is the right thing to do? Government uh, is, is part of their IRP, uh, Matt. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see, what else? But, but remember to at me if you've got comments for me. Uh, let's see. Uh, but, 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 much chat, much chat. Lovely. Okay, right. I can't see any more ads with, with my my name, so I'm going to continue with the news. Um, what else is going on? Let's go back to my miniaturized face. Yeah, um, this is an interesting one. So this is Torsten Bell um, putting up an interesting little graph here, which shows this is so that these two are um, the uh, highest earnings. So the, the ten highest 10 and 20% earners. And then the lowest 10 and 20% earners are here. And then the, the green here is median. So this is about earning, you know, earnings um, as a, uh, oh, it's actually the, it's the other way around, sorry, isn't it? That's the highest 10% and 10, 20%. That's the lowest 10% and 20%. And that's the median. Um, these are showing, basically, the point of understanding the problems that we've got in our economy is that we're living with the inequality surge of the 1980s. So this huge split in, you know, the thing that massively changed in Britain uh, more than ever had before was the dis- the difference in, in between um, those earning the most and, and, and earning the least. Inequality, uh, there are lots of, lots of excellent research that, that, that shows that, uh, indeed, one of Dina's kind of colleagues um that shows that inequality is one of the root causes of lots of social ills uh lots of democratic health uh indicators all come from inequ- increased inequality a more equal society is generally a fairer better and, and better uh, and, and and happier society as well and um so this huge gap here and then the next thing is then the stagnation of those salaries so there's a so that the the, the the inequality reduced and then it just dropped away uh, again. Uh, and just generally all salaries have just dropped because you know, the UK is a dump country. But yeah, the UK is just facing some bigger and bigger chronic problems. Um, and this summer we're going to all then also be bursting into flames because of this heat wave. So it's just a really, really healthy place for us to be. And I know a lot of people are like, well, well doom and gloom. It's good for us to be aware of these challenges. Uh, another one here, which is even more doom uh, and gloom, is... Um, uh, having a look at the difference between uh, the UK and Ireland when it comes to life expectancy, which is a very, very good measure of the, the health of a of a nation, uh, the health of a country. Uh, and it's kind of general, not just health in terms of like uh, explicit kind of medical health morbidity, but also bro- more broadly, it's a good indicator of welfare and, and, and conditions. Uh, let's have a look here. Oh, look, 
um, massive split in uh, in the kind of the uh, the early uh, 2000s. Uh, sorry, the early 2010s. There, you notice a bit of a massive split um, as austerity started to bite. And then, oh look, what happened in uh, at that point? So uh, another massive drop. Uh, this was uh, this is austerity. Uh, so this is austerity, and this is COVID. And you can see here um, that this is really representative of how badly the UK did compared to Ireland in terms of our COVID response. And actually, what's interesting is if you zoom out, you can see that generally the UK had been doing better. This is the UK. We've been doing better uh, than than uh, than Ireland uh, down here. This is Ireland. Um, not doing so well. I don't know why it's ticking across. That's not really fair, is it? Sorry, Ireland. Anyway, uh, through the 2000s, things started kind of uh, merging. Uh, and indeed, Ireland sort of uh, very much post-austerity, Ireland sort of started tipping above uh, the UK for, for life expectancy. So this is how, on average, how, what the year, how old you are before you're going to die. Um, and uh, yeah, not good. The UK, you can see, is starting to really drop. If anyone's wondering, like, the, the, the impact the, the conservative decisions right now are not impacting on just the worst off in society they're impacting on everyone absolutely everyone this country is being torn is being torn systematically dismantled or rather unsystematically dismantled not good uh and of course the fun is that the next prime minister is going to be even worse than the previous one uh and for example i think sajid javid was suggesting yeah this this cut of fuel duty by 10 pence per litre which is essentially going to cost would cost the same as just making all public transport free um just yeah martha you're absolutely right the uk is a failed state i don't say that lightly this is we are in a failed state our democracy is absolutely not fit for purpose um this is a failing country you know it, it is falling to bits and and uh and it's going to reach a point where a lot of young people uh, and when I say young people, I mean people under the age of 50 are going to start making decisions about whether they stay and try and attempt to fix this country or whether they leave it and go somewhere that isn't a failed state, um, which will only kick off an increasing spiral of, of, of collapse. Um, I have a Serbian wife. Uh, I know what that, you know, I, she knows what that looks like. And I, it continues to make me ever, ever more le or ever less naive about how quickly that can happen. Um, and how hard it is to reverse once you've had that brain drain of all the clever people going um, stuff this for a bunch of Sundays. Um, yeah, not good. Uh, has Javid gone? Gareth Williams says Javid's gone. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, our special boy Grant Shapps has gone as well. He was going to go and then uh, everyone laughed at him and then he said no, which is in a way he, he was the only one who said anything like approaching human on the level of like dealing with trans rights. Uh, everyone else has just gone full horrifying homophobic transphobe. Uh, not great. Anyway, uh, meanwhile, here's our uh, here's our, our good friend, um, our boy Justin here on the. Uh, here he is uh, and uh, and someone else I believe who uh, who is a uh, we talk about our dreadful prime minister. Um, she isn't perfect, but uh, Jacinda is not 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 a bad role model. If you're going to have a role model who is she's reasonably inspirational, given that she's got a wee one and is running things, they have not done the best through COVID. They haven't necessarily pursued the zero COVID is a very brave and bold policy for an island because you just can live in fear of it arriving at any point so maybe not the best but that's one and, and you know maybe not as perfectly progressive as lots of us think but frankly compared to the current lot i would happily take uh arden as a as a prime minister anyway taking eurostar to get to europe funny that um so uh yeah very nice spain just made short to medium rail travel free from september crikey uh we're returning to the alphabetus in pet uh, era says martha yeah quite um so anyway uh, Matt Reed, I'm not sure what you're saying is actually true, but probably. 
Uh, right, I believe the treat author recalculated the 10% cost of about 70% of all public transport. Yeah, their thread did, did recalculate it. So basically, uh, the cost of doing the €9 Euro monthly ticket like Germany did. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so meanwhile, other meanwhiles, yes, the results of the €9 Euro ticket in Germany are coming in. They're actually seeing the impact of, the, of, of this uh, policy now, which is that traffic congestion has dropped in 23 out of 26 cities in Germany. Uh, traffic in Hamburg it's specifically is down 20%. Uh, rail use is 60% higher than pre-COVID levels. Hmm. And as James Gleave points out, hi, James, uh, it's almost like if you make public transport good value, people drive less. Ah, what a thought. What a thought. Oh, golly. Anyway. So that's uh, that's all good. Any other meanwhiles? Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, consultation starts on Swiss Bahn 2050. I remember my Network 2050 um, proposals that kind of never materialised because Shaps uh, or the, rather the Williams review happened and it kind of events moved on around me. Um, more on that later though. But in any case, uh, they're starting a consultation on uh, and and basically the details of this consultation are they're looking at a, a horizon of 2050 uh, perspective Bahn uh, 2050. Uh, I can't remember how you'd say 2050. And how do you say the year? Uh, uh, probably like 2050 or something like that. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, the Federal Council has put forward proposals for a further long-term program of investment in the national rail network. Uh, and they're looking at a long-term horizon to 2050, um, double tracking of, of, of the Luchberg uh, base tunnel and uh, all sorts of other things enhanced with the existing network, uh, kind of more intensive use. Um, so that's fine. Some more re-signaling and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, basically they're saying it's not so much about speed now, it's about expanding uh, where rail has been left behind. So they're kind of at the point where they've got reasonable speed, although they could definitely still improve some of their journey times in Switzerland anyway. Um, yeah, it's gonna, so those proposals then feed into legislation, which we passed in 2026, and then that defines basically 25 years of investment. Um, uh, and they're expecting more legislation kind of going through the rest of the decade. Um, yes, yeah, so there's lots of stuff about this, about Switzerland aiming, they're also aiming for 2050 net zero. Um, and the most recent assessment of long-term rail investment uh, dates from 2012, and it was geared mainly towards easing bottlenecks and enhancing regular interval services with their uh, TAC plan. Uh, Band 2050 switches to local and regional traffic. So this is looking at, so they've done the, they've basically done the kind of the core stuff. Now they're looking at the fringes and the regional stuff to try and really boost that market share. Uh, and they're looking to, um, they're looking to go from uh, public, yeah, basically looking to go from 26 billion passenger kilometers to 38 billion passenger kilometers. What is that? Like an, a, a, adding an extra hundred, is that a hundred percent increase? Is that a hundred percent increase? No, it's not. It's a, uh, it's like a 50% increase, which is quite substantial. But they are driving these major objectives for long-term uh, long kind of viewing. Um, yeah. Anyway, there you go. Uh, let's see. David Shepard, making public transport free would remove all the costs associated with collecting money and revenue protection. Yep, it's true. Uh, Matt Reed is saying the free public transport being the same as a 10p reduction in fuel duty. Yeah, uh, not quite, Matt. As, uh, there's a little bit of nuance to it. It's the same as doing what Germany's done with the 9 euro. Uh, yeah, it's 5,050. Yeah, that's right. Um, where are we? Thanks, Raphael. Yeah, I do speak a little bit of German. I just sometimes forget. I don't speak it nearly enough. Um, yeah, all good stuff. Imagine having a long-term plan for anything at all. Yeah, I know, right? Um, oh, but it's not all. It's not all happy, happy and sunshine and roses in in the EU though, because the EU has had decades of frankly rubbish transport policy. It's massively pro-highway, particularly at the fringes. You know, particularly in the areas in the new, the, the more recently ascended uh, countries that, that join the EU, it's just like highways, highways, highways. And likewise, you know, in Serbia, which is not an EU country, but it, it, it's attempting uh, in vain to to join at some point. Uh, the EU has invested loads in highways. 
and very little in any sort of public transport whatsoever. Um, and they're kind of attempting to maybe reverse this, uh, trying to... But bearing in mind that the EU's policy on rail has been... I'm afraid it's more like the European Commission, is, is like the the awful um, uh, third and fourth rail packages that have just been all about like attempting to create Britain's rail system but across the whole of the EU. Uh, but they were basically... It's kind of indicative of the fact that EU and, and, and European... Uh, bureaucratic kind of machine the machine is about 10 years too slow so at the point where they were uh, setting up the 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 fourth rail package they were like oh yeah things seem to be working pretty well in the uk they've got great um great rail ridership increases uh fantastic uh correlation does not mean causation and that's a no better example 10 years later our system has collapsed it just collapsed totally and the eu is having it foisted on itself so just shocking um, a proper mess. So the EU is far from a, a, a rail policy is a disaster, and they could do so much more to assert. Um, you know, you, you you just have a look at John Worth desperately trying to get across all the borders in the EU by rail. It's just a mess, an absolute mess. So that you could do so much more. Um, uh, David Shepard, I've had anti-EU people blaming the EU for railway privatisation. Well, yes, to an extent, to be honest, the the EU or rather the European Commission has quite a lot to blame for that. Um, uh, Adam Evans is saying I've watched quite a few Serbian cab rides and there are loads of EU flags on bits of infrastructure there are a few now but by and large it's been minimal investment and most of the investments come from Russia and China EU investment is pretty minimal uh, when it comes to railways in Serbia they, they might have shoved a flag or two up but I can promise you the, the investment that they've put in compared to Russia and China is absolutely minimal um, yeah uh, the EU bad at railways frankly um, it doesn't mean we should end the EU and leave the EU. It means that we should get involved and change that. Uh, you know, there is no better model. For, you know, that any other model is going to end up looking basically like the EU for collab collaboration across borders. The point is that the EU is bad at it and it should change. You know, the European Parliament, European Commission, particularly the European Commission, um, is is like obsessed with private capital and, and, and with business market autonomy. Lots of things about the EU are very bad, folks. It doesn't mean that the EU we should have left the EU, but lots of things about the EU are very, very bad. Oh, anyway, um, pandemic GHG emissions. This is an interesting post by Glenn Peters here. Hi, Glenn. Um, looking at uh, fossil CO2 emissions uh, and their, and how much they declined during 2020. Uh, this is interesting because it's basically these these sort of different... So this is power here, and the the, the light one is, is 2019, the dark one is 2020. Uh, and you can see there's just kind of general reduction, but not much of a change really in, in power generation. Uh, and it's a major source, not much change. Uh, industry, see... Um, quite a major drop at the start of the year and then back to kind of almost normal again by the end uh, residential almost no change uh, ground transport major change you know major reduction in, in emissions uh through 2020 which i mean as you'd expect really but yeah that's quite an interesting one so it's quite interesting to compare those um likewise domestic aviation and what's interesting is that uh, ground transport is mostly recovered domestic aviation has not and good that's a good thing um uh, international bunkers i don't know um uh yeah that's also quite a substantial drop i don't know what that is though what is international bunkers everyone tell me um uh yes so uh right yeah pandemic ghg emissions oh and talking about homeworking there's lots of stats and data here uh oh golly i'm not even this is still the news and we're 48 minutes this is why i put it after the opening credits right uh homeworking in the uk has more than doubled between october and uh, december 2019 uh, sorry basically up to March 2022, which if we remember 
March 2022 is... I'm just going to pull it up here. Can I, can I find the right window? March 2022 is... Uh, was... We were still kind of at 60% of rails. So it's, an, it's not... You know, we weren't fully recovered. Everything was kind of low down. However... Uh, the ONS has uh, has said that, that home working has doubled. Fine, yeah. Um, uh, from from five million to ten million uh, people. So that's an increase from like, uh, yeah. How much of the workforce? Like five percent of the workforce to ten percent of the workforce, or or seven and a half percent of the workforce to fifteen percent of the workforce. Uh, so it's not like it's a radical alteration. A lot of people are saying, oh, it's a huge. Still not like most people still have to be where they have to go somewhere to do the work. But it's you know it's 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 a trend that has been accelerated. You know we're seeing more of this, and that's now being accelerated quite substantially. So it's quite interesting to see that. Um, to see that, what it did, of course, spark off is um, absolute roasting hot takes from um, from libertarian right wing cranks like Tim Worstall, um, coming up with sort of buggers the case for HS two, doesn't it? It was like, no, no, it doesn't. And and then the the discussion under here proved that this guy who works for or at least is affiliated with the adam smith institute is exactly as much of a, a muppet as you'd expect just basically a paid a paid crank that uh, paid in order to ignore evidence and to have bad opinions that's what that's kind of how these things work paid to have these bad opinions um i think maybe you're right is international bunkers i think is shipping adam you're right i think that is what that is um uh, yes, I don't, uh, Martha. I don't believe in open access as well. I know lots of people say it's good for certain things, but actually, I think it just eats away at what should be a revenue stream for the main, for the for the for the national, the state operator. Um, I, I don't think we should close it off, but I do think that it should be very heavily, more heavily regulated, perhaps than it is. Although in the UK, it's pretty heavy, pretty heavily regulated. Anyway. Ah, so a little bit of good news again. East-West Rail is still happening-ish, question mark, uh, because there's some, you know, a new train is currently run for the first time in a lot, uh, since 1993 between Swanbourne uh, to Bletchley, um, which is nice. There it is. It's a freight train, but it's, it's, it's carrying bits for East-West Rail. But East-West Rail is kind of still happening. It is happening. Look, great. Marvellous. You'll notice a glaring lack of oily. Well, yeah, we all know about that, don't we? Let's move on from that. Uh, and then the last thing is strikes. Uh, well, not only this, actually, because uh, the RMT have just said they're going to do another strike on the 27th. Uh, 27th of uh, July, I presume, uh, is another RMT strike. So Aslef have balloted for strikes. Uh, it's, it's an overwhelming, like absolutely overwhelming uh, pro like, yes to strikes uh, result. Also, I believe the TSSA have also voted in favor of strikes. Uh there are some nuances in amongst the various management levels in Network Rail, but the TSSA are also striking. So it's going to be a summer of railway strikes. Hooray. Anyway, right. Strikes. Uh, solidarity to everyone striking, but absolutely make strikes happen. That's the only way at the moment we can hold government to account on how much they're just shredding the industry. Oh, right. Uh, Adam Evans is pointing out in terms of the EU directive about private rail operation, just be like Belgium and straight up ignore it. Yep, agreed. That's what everyone should do. Section two. Let's talk about the Shaps tweet. Uh, the tweet. Well, here's his tweet. As union bosses waste time touring television studios, bearing in mind he created, he was it, while this was happening, he was probably creating his glossy video to run as potential PM. Anyway, uh, I'm getting on with the job at hand and modernising our railway. You're absolutely not. That's you're not doing that. This is it. one billion pound investment will replace outdated Victorian infrastructure. With cutting-edge digital signaling on the East Coast mainline. Well, there's a lot wrong with that. And Pe Wendy Morton, the rail minister, got involved in this as well, uh, parroting the Victorian infrastructure nonsense, which we're going to dive into momentarily. But also along with this came a DFT-produced video, which we're going to watch 
now. Let's watch it, shall we? Let's watch this little video. Let's enjoy some happy Shaps time. 200 years ago, Britain invented the railway, but that means that some of the technology behind our railways are somewhat outdated. Like critical signalling systems, for example, which currently divides the track into sections and allows just one train in any one section at any one time. And if a train has to slow down or stop, it quickly creates knock-on delays right down the line. But now we're transforming the East Coast Main Line by investing over a billion pounds in new digital signalling. Instead of old trackside traffic lights, uh, the driver instead has a screen inside their cab, constantly updated with the latest information. It means shorter delays, faster journeys, and more capacity on existing lines, all of which signals a very bright future for Britain's railways. I don't think that's how you drive a train, Grant. But anyway, that was our special boy, Grant Shaps, there. Uh, that was quite loud. I do apologize. Um, anyway, oh. so let us um, let us break this down uh, because there's a lot in here. And so it's time to dust off our old friend, the buzzer. Uh, so let's just very quickly go through this as quickly as I possibly can um, and, and actually pick out some of these things. So everything he says, let's just have a look at it all, shall we? So uh, thing that he says, number one, 200 years ago, Britain invented the railway. Um, let's have a think about this uh, because firstly, no, we didn't. Uh, let's, there's two elements to this, right? The first thing is 200 years ago. Well, no, the railways arrived in, 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 in Britain by several measures. It was not 200 years ago. The modern railway arrived to about 200 years ago. The Liverpool and Manchester Railway was the first truly modern railway, right? Liverpool and Manchester. It was not the Shil the, the, the Stockton Darlington. The Stockton Darlington was, was, in my eyes, the last of the previous era. The, the, the first truly modern railway was the, the, the Liverpool and Manchester. So, okay, modern railways 200 years ago in Britain. Yeah, that's fine-ish. But that's not true, and it's jingoistic to suggest that the railways are a British thing. Because we were merely kind of apprehending quite a lot of other, you know, the, firstly, they arrived in Britain um, in 1594. So that's quite a lot more than 200 years ago. We had things that you and I would recognize as railways in the middle of the 1700s. So the 1760s, you'd have looked at things and gone, that's a railway. I absolutely recognize that as a railway. Um, but even before that, you know, even before the, uh, they arrived in Britain, the Germans had been using them. The Germans had been developing the system that you see in front of you is a is a is a German system, um, and it is a it's a it's a guideway. It's a guideway with a wheel that reduces low reduced friction um, and a guideway so that you don't steer it. It's self steered. That for me is a is a a form of permanent way. It's it's a railway, um, and the Greeks had this. They created limestone railways as early as like six hundred BC. So we've had railways for a very long time. People often say, oh, it's a new transient technology. You know, oh, you know, they, they don't... Oh, they don't the railways are as fundamental as the wheel in terms of how you move things around. That low friction interface between two strong things, which today is defined by steel on steel, is is like that's that interface is as fundamental as the, as the circularity of the wheel. It's just a fundamental part of moving things around with, uh, with, with uh, low energy. So, um, sorry, um, very, very much... Uh, uh, very much false on this one. Sorry, Grant. Let's go. Let's see what else our special boy has to say. Oh, but that means that some of the technology behind our railways are somewhat outdated. Does it? Why? Does... So so the railway connect created, even if you look back at just Liverpool and Manchester, so, so in what way is any... Firstly, what are we using from then that we use now? Because... 
back in the 1830s, we weren't using signaling that in any way reflects what has anything has looked like for decades and decades. Um, so uh, what possible technology are we using that has anything to do with 200 years ago? And I get his implication that, yeah, we've had railways for a long time and that means they're outdated, but, but it's not true because actually we've had, as we'll talk about momentarily, we've had technology updates in terms of signaling decades on and decades on. You know, every few decades we've had radical leaps and indeed we be, have been world leading in you know, the thing that this government keeps attempting to be. We have been world leading in terms of our signaling technology in this country um, successively uh, and, and more recently. So uh, this is very much a false one. Let's, what else is he saying? So uh, now he's explaining uh, absolute block signaling, which like, yeah, that OK, fine. Absolute block signaling is right. But the thing that's wrong here um, is uh, is the suggestion that this this is the reason why we have. Uh, knock-on delays right down the line because this what he's describing here you'd still have knock-on delays down the line if this was moving block signaling so i'm sure everyone on here uh, knows the difference. absolute block signaling is where you have these fixed essentially fixed not necessarily by the signal posts but fixed position blocks set geographically fixed a train enters it and nothing else can enter the block while a train is in the block and it goes out and then something else can enter and you kind of end up with what he showed on the video right which is where things enter the blocks and they're fine um a couple of things firstly this is the system that's being introduced at the moment they're not introducing apps uh moving block signaling moving block sorry is where the block follows the train around and the block as the train gets faster the block expands as the train gets slower the block gets smaller and it means that you can theoretically squeeze a few more trains on the track but fundamentally whether you've got moving or absolute block signaling you're still going to end up with you still have headways you still have things getting queued up when you haven't fixed the 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 kind of the bottlenecks on the line so sorry this is a, this is a false um uh and the next thing he's saying is we're 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 transforming the East Coast Main Line. We're transforming the East Coast Main Line by investing over a billion pounds in new digital digital signaling. Um, no, uh, he's not, because this was proposed uh, years and years ago, and it actually dates back to the previous... It actually dates back to labour years, but certainly ETCS has been in slow development since... Uh, the late 2000s it was deployed in 2011 on the on the um you know the, the, the cambrian uh, lines um and uh, we've seen it rolling out on thameslink in 2018 crossrail but this has been proposed for rolling out for for a long time well before shaps was in brief so uh this is very much a a, a, a false oh dear me anyway uh, what's next? So, uh, instead of all trackside traffic lights, the driver instead has a screen inside their cab, constantly updated with the latest information. Well, that is true. That is kind of how um, ETCS uh, and ERTMS works. It is in cab stuff. So that's 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 true. There's, there's no avoiding that. Is a true thing. Um, it means shorter delays, faster journeys, and more capacity on existing lines. Well, no, it doesn't actually, because in lots of cases on the East Coast Main Line. The East Coast Main Line is running as, you know, the, 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 the capacity on the line is not going to be improved by changing from absolute to moving block signaling because there are fundamental bottlenecks, bottlenecks like well in Viaduct, um, like uh, Newark Flat Crossing, these fundamental bottleneck issues, uh, Peter, everything in Peterborough still, bottleneck issues that, don't, that just don't get resolved. The, 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 the mixed traffic challenge that, that is the reason why you need HS2 None of that gets solved. So actually, no, you know what? It doesn't really mean more capacity, not to the extent that he is trying to, to, trying to suggest. Um, and it doesn't really mean faster journeys either. Um, it, it, yeah, no. So this is, this is false. This is, this is getting a false. Um, 
What else is he saying? Oh, yeah, he's saying all of which signals a very bright future for Britain's railways. Uh, no, it doesn't. It's just This is just a necessary, essentially a, a light-for-light renewal, or, or certainly it's, a, it's just a renewal of the signaling system with the next stage of upgrade, but it's not a radical change. I'm sorry. Anyone who's trying to suggest that is doing government's job for them and is, it needs to have a little think about the reality because it does not represent a, ste- a fundamental change. Don't get me wrong, traffic management will be, is fantastic, very useful. In-cab signaling is fantastic, very useful. Removing line-side equipment is very useful. The reason this is important, the reason we need ETCF, this project is fantastic, by the way. Don't let his stupid video take away from the fact this is fantastic, necessary work. It, you know, it's, it's really cutting-edge stuff. Uh, frustrating they've de-scoped so they don't include King's Cross. But anyway, um, the reason why this is necessary is because we could not renew all the signaling up the East Coast Main Line conventionally. And that's true for all the signaling that is coming. A lot of signaling, a lot of interlocking is coming up for needing renewal. And we just can't do it conventionally. We don't have the time. We don't have the skilled people. We don't have the resources. And so ETCS is an absolutely necessary and vital part of of, of doing that, achieving that, pulling it together. Um, so that's a, that's a buzz. Ah, the DFT. The DFT, there's some, there are lots of good people in the DFT. Don't Just refuse to make these things for him. Just refuse. Please. Uh, the other thing that frustrates me is not so much that... Okay, video, fine. They're fairly innocuous, frankly. Um, but what's frustrating is, the, is their press release that went with this, which this is an official Department for Transport press release where they are referring to... Well, okay, let's go through this. A variety of buzzes. So the first one is... Um, uh, oh, yeah, well, right. Let, let's talk about the Victorian infrastructure thing. Let, let's talk about the Victorian... This this Victorian infrastructure nonsense. Billion quid of government funding will be used to replace outdated Victorian infrastructure with cutting-edge digital signaling technology. This is true bollocks, and we're going to break it down. Uh, I know there's lots of questions. We're going to... In fact, you know what? Let's... I'll get to the end of this segment, and I'll go through the questions. That's, that's, that's the way to do it. So let's very, very quickly go through signaling history of the East Coast Main Line. So in 1930, uh, there was a massive re-signaling of King's Cross. They did lots of things to, to re-signal um, King's Cross Station. They realigned the throat and did quite a lot of things. So 1938 Victorian. So it's already not Victorian. Let's jump to the next thing. Well, let's jump to 1951, which is... Uh, this is a picture of York uh, Power Signal Box, actually. Here it is, York Power Signal Box. Um... This was the biggest, uh, let me just remind myself exactly of what the stat is, actually. I think this is the biggest, this is the biggest and most complicated um, power signal box um, in the world at the time of its opening. That was 1951. And, con- and, and the whole East Coast mainland continued to have upgrades, power signal boxes installed, right there through to you know, 1977, where King's Cross power signal box was, was built, which was, again, absolutely cutting edge of what power signal boxes could, could achieve. So all this power, all this clever um, kind of interlocking, very, very clever kind of relay interlocking system. Uh, fantastic. Um, 1989, we then jumped to the next, you know, a leap, a genuine world leading leap forwards. Um, funnily enough, around about the 70s was when British Rail Research had been developing solid state interlocking. And in 1989, and they'd started rolling out by by this point, by, by but through the 1980s, it had been rolling out in more and more places, and, and it really had a breakthrough when it was rolled out as an alternative to relay interlocking on the Highland Main Line. But when it arrived in on the East Coast Main Line, the um, uh, the IECC in York, for example, the um, Integrated Electronic Control Centre in York, which uh, here is a picture of it, in 1989, this was the absolute cutting edge of modern signalling. And and it, and it and it kind of still is right at that cutting edge, and um, there you know and and unfortunately privatization killed this killed solid state interlocking or didn't kill it but it um it, it bludgeoned it to the point where it wasn't being sold anymore. There was already an export plan. This was being bought by European railways and and others around the world up until the point where privatization 
killed it off. Railtrack came in and said, "Oh, um, uh, yeah, we're not we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. We're going to buy an off the shelf system from Europe because that's a good idea." When actually they they bought they they had three major projects of inter- of, of 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 what is basically solid state interlocking, but it was the next Euro- European uh, the European market had picked it up and was running with it as a technology. Uh, CBI computer-based interlocking which is the same as solid state interlocking but it's just a different uh, name for it um, and that was those three projects three projects that were announced by railtrack all of them were a disaster and have had to be re-signaled subsequently with ssi or with ssi capable systems so solid state interlocking was seriously very good and privatization met, uh, killed off what could have been a very very strong export market for us um very very frustrating never let anyone tell you that the state cannot be enterprising cannot be innovative it's bollocks uh, anyway there we go sorry everyone who i'm saying bollocks about but that's uh, no one minds i am going to go through all the questions don't worry anyway so and this continues because it hasn't stopped there because we're continuing to resignal you know in 2015 um the the york uh, rail operating center opened um, and in 2021 king's cross was moved over to the to the rock so this this is completely you know this this is this is a totally integrated uh, new signaling systems, all this new clever solid state interlocking, but now through the rock. So we're continuing to have, and no one can tell me that what we're looking at on screen at the moment is Victorian. It isn't. So um, the idea that it's Victorian is bunkum. It's false. So what's the next thing that we're going to see that's false? Um, the idea that this will mean faster, safer, and more regular trains for millions of people. I'm not sure it'll mean safer. The, the signaling rules are the same. Mm, so not sure about that. Um, uh, faster, no, that does. It's just not. Uh, d- no, I don't think it'll make much difference to timetables. I don't think it'll make much difference. Trains are running pretty fast up these coast mainline at the moment. Um, regulation, which is the way that you fit different trains with different speeds and different stopping patterns in amongst each other, um, doesn't really get helped hugely by um, uh, ETCS and, and European Rail Traffic Management. Um, the reality is that that mixed traffic situation is just a problem it's just a major problem for route capacity uh what else have we got oh yeah that's right the idea that union leaders brought the rail the nation's railways to a standstill no no government brought it to a standstill by not negotiating with the unions and actually not trying to rip them off and and sack them and another one which is i'm going to shout at grant Schatz for saying while union bosses waste time touring television studios and standing on picket lines they're not wasting their time they're literally fighting for their jobs rights conditions and for the health of the railway and he's saying, I'm busy getting on with the job at hand. Well, you're not, though, are you? Because you were making your machinations to run for leader. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm calling this one a major series of, of false buzzes here. Uh, lots of false buzzes. In any case. Oh, right. We're going to talk about VLR for 15 minutes, and then, and then I'll wrap this up. Oh, that was exciting. Anyway, right. Uh, let's go big face while I go through some questions. Lots of questions have appeared. Uh, what is... David, what bit to do? Oh, the buzzer. I could I extract this into its own short bit. Oh, maybe I will. Okay, thanks, David. Uh, yeah, maybe I will do that. Right. So, uh, what book is this from? I don't know which book. Which book? Uh, Raphael, you have to send me another message. David saying Paul and Rebecca Whitewick have great video on the origins of the railways. Yeah, yeah, they they do great videos. Long overdue another collaboration. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, New York Flat Crossing? Question mark. Yes, that's right. New York Flat Crossing. Uh, HST trains. Yes. Um, but 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 yeah. Technology is a very vague word. Uh, freight couplings being chains. Is that? Uh, that's Xander making queries. Possibly. Matt Reed. Uh, surely even with moving block, there won't be uh, that many more trains. You're absolutely right, Matt. You're absolutely right. You don't fit that many more trains. Originally, it was like there were suggestions that it would be like a hundred percent. Then it reduced to fifty percent more capacity. Now it's like five percent, ten percent maybe. So they're like pulling back 
and back. It's, it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. This is just it's the it's the future of signaling. It's just that that doesn't mean that it buys as much. You know, the, it doesn't mean that it's suddenly that dramatic benefit. The reality is that you need more steel to run trains on. Uh, let's see. Uh, surely this has been mooted since 140 miles per hour wasn't allowed. Well, yeah, quite. Uh, in cab signaling was was sort of suggest that. But, but for everyone, we're never going to see 140 miles an hour on the East Coast Mainline, or we shouldn't. We hopefully won't because that will just hit capacity even harder. Uh, steady progress, right? It's uh, simple, steady progress. Well, it doesn't have to be simple, but steady is good. Uh, Harry Tanzer is saying the current signaling bit is not correct. The order, uh, the aspects changing is wrong. Ha, <laughs> nice. Love the job. Um, uh, Jack Elliott is saying, would 140 miles an hour on the East Coast mainline reduce capacity? Yes, it would reduce capacity because you'd have an even greater speed differential between stopping and non-stop trains. Uh, HST trains, are they only doing London to Peterborough or something like that? Yeah, it's currently it's it's just north of King's Cross Station because they're not doing King's Cross for some reason. Uh, well, laziness. Uh, they're doing north of King's Cross to Stoke Thomas, so kind of the other side of Peterborough. So they're going through Peterborough, and that's it. Um, uh, they should uh, they should have shut... Adam Evans is saying they should have shut Shaps up and just let him play with the simulator. HST trains, wasn't the signaling renewed when HSTs came in? Uh, a bit, but it was it t- tied in with that, but not entirely uh, connected with it, actually, because the whole point of the HSTs was that they could run within existing signaling uh, blocks. That was kind of part of their point. Uh, let's see what else uh what else have we got here uh questions 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 yeah 140 mile an hour is bad uh lin man foo would uh, it would be interesting to have a real matter about solid state interlocking uh is the protection uh in software or in the silicon uh, hardware Ooh. so we had we did have a discussion a bit about solid state interlocking um didn't we uh in the pre in the previous episode a while back that was quite a while back now wasn't it the three three systems uh of, of signaling interlocking and control uh, go go back to that episode where we talk a bit about it. But yeah, maybe we could have someone to come through and actually talk about triple S uh, about S triple SI. That's something totally different about SSI. Uh, yeah, that's true. Oh, um, crikey! Uh, oh, what book is it from? It's I don't know, but you can reverse image search it with a screenshot and it pops up. It's on Wikipedia. It's on Wikipedia for railways. I think the railway history. Uh, David Shepard. The picture we asked about what book was the? Oh yeah, German things. That's right. Yeah, Bob's rail relics. VLR question. Oh, here we go. Yeah, send your VLR questions in. Because um, it's, it's VLR question time. Uh, if we install moving block signaling, says David Shepard, and then open HS2, would that make it easier to hand over uh, the ECMLs to stopping services? Uh, yes, it would. Yeah, uh, definitely it would. Wasn't the APT program about already battling the Victorian infrastructure? Yeah, well, yeah, but it wasn't really Victorian even then. So, you know, uh, anyway, right. So that was a VLR question. Send your VLR questions. Let's do it. Actually, I need to go to the. I need to go to my YouTube channel. You're going to hear my. You briefly hear. Uh, oh no, because no, I'm live. I'm going to go into here and just go in to look at the VLR Morning. questions. Um, oh, that's my voice briefly. Uh, some VLR questions that were sent uh, here. So I'll get those up as well. So I'll have a look at those. Uh, in fact, I'll do. Yeah, I'll do that as well. But send in your VLR questions because it is VLR question time. So. Uh, this is for last week's episode, obviously, where I said I was going to do a bit of a, a bit of a Q and A about VLR because I didn't. I was going to do a Q and A in this episode. It ended up being quite a short episode. I hope it covered everything that people were interested in and answered the question. So yeah, VLR is very light rail. There are two systems: is urban VLR, which is basically like small trams, streetcar type, like traditional old streetcars. Uh, urban VLR, and then rural VLR, which is just a bubble car. It's just like a class one twenty one for the for the modern era, like one five three replacement, basically. So that's what those are. So these are the two systems. Uh, here they are zoomed in. And I've got these as pictures in the background so that I can scribble on them. But I'm going to go back to Big Face. And I'm going to start by answering the first live question, which was from uh, Bob's Rail Relics, which was a VLR question. Could these be an option for the March to, to uh, Wisbeach uh, line reopening? 
Well, that's if that reopening happens. Uh, these for, for the thing for for a new railway. Remember, we don't we shouldn't be reopening any railways. We should be building new railways that may happen to make use of former alignments. That bit of railway, um, you have to build it as new. You have to build it from new, which means that you have to do a load of things to satisfy the minimum requirements anyway. That means that means there's no difference in cost. But they could run. Remember, these the, the 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 rural VLR is not a revolutionary thing, despite its name being Revolution VLR. It's just a lightweight uh, kind of single car potential multiple unit, you know. But it's a single car sort of uh, uh, that can be coupled up. So it's not revolutionary. So it, it could run it just as any train would. I don't think it represents a major cost saving in infrastructure operation. What it potentially, um, you know, maybe it is an improvement in terms of general revenue. It maybe allows you to do some cute things with the maintenance, but ultimately, you still there are a lot of fixed costs on on a railway corridor anyway. So potentially, um, remember to at me for questions because I do miss them. But Martha just asked one. I'm going to answer it now because I, I, so I don't miss it. Um, question: What does the urban VLR do that a minibus doesn't? It's a very good question. Nothing. Um, Except the one thing, which is a reasonable point, which I, I think is where they're coming from in trying to progress this system, which is that buses don't drive modal shift in the same way that trams do. And so they're attempting to create a cheap to install tram system that dri that drives modal shift because of the fixed infrastructure. So they're trying to jump on a, a real a real social phenomenon which is that fixed infrastructure like tracks in the ground do drive modal shift in the way that buses do not they can also not be cancelled in the way that yeah you know, as in uh, it's you can change a bus route rapidly and so people are wary of it fixed infrastructure has to and can run and, it, and it, so there is there is an element of politics at play here so i can understand where they're coming from with the system and i'm and i'm keeping an open mind on it but martha i share your skepticism in that just make it a regular tram by the time you've built this i do share that point right Lots of questions. Oh, uh, let's see. So, uh, Xander is asking a VLR question, which is, I didn't quite follow the use case of urban VLR. If required capacity is more than a bus, why do the VLR pods hold about the same as a bus, just making three car units? Yes. Uh, I think I've explained that with my answer to Martha, actually, uh, Xander. I think they're trying they're, they're try to have a small thing because they're partly it's a bit poddy. So there's a little bit of an element of poddy nonsense about it. So yes, I have that skepticism. Um, but it's it's partly trying to... It's about as much as a bus. It's trying to capture that like permanent infrastructure um, modal shift uh, thing. Uh, VLR question: Thoughts uh, on non-articulated single car trains? Raphael, I'm not ask your question again a bit more clearly. I'm not quite sure what you're asking there. Um, make it more specific to either the urban or rural ones. Adam Evans is asking: uh, Will the diesel power pack in the rural VLR be switched to something like JCB's hydrogen combustion engines to go carbon-free somewhat cheaply? They're looking at battery rather than hydrogen, actually. Um, hydrogen just doesn't have the energy density to fit into a system like that, so they're looking at batteries. Um, but they are looking at batteries now. You know, uh, the rural VLR was a bit before some of the policy changes, actually, so it, it's a little bit behind the trend on that. It's been a longer development cycle, but they they can. It's it's got racked systems, so they can put more batteries in. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, da -da -da. Right, David Thompson. David Thomason is asking: Can they run in multiple unit? The uh, the 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 rural VLR can. It's got a coupling system, so it can. That, that, that's fine. Uh, urban VLR does not have a coupling system. They're talking about virtual coupling, and I had to just say virtual coupling doesn't exist. Doesn't exist, uh, and so. But then neither did the autonomy that they're fronting. So no, they're saying that they could platoon them. But again, I was like, yeah, but platooning doesn't exist, and on a mixed traffic system, I don't think it will exist. So yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, what else? Let's see. Uh, Ed Fielden. Uh, not sure on progress, but I think a VLR or similar is proposed for Kemble Sirencester. I've never had to pronounce Sirencester. I've read it. I've never had to say it. It's a bit like Leicester. So is it Sirester? No, it must be Sirencester. I don't know. Someone transliterate for me, please. Their new link. Quite possibly, like it's been proposed in all sorts of places, but the reality is it's just the same as a 153, lighter and cheaper. Like, fine. Um... Let's see, where are we at? Uh, Lin Man Fu. Were the cab ends of the VLR vehicles made of steel or aluminium? Neither seem to have anything like pillars or roll bar. I realise lower speeds, but what if they hit a bridge or HGV? So the, the urban one uh, is does have a crash structure. It does have a capable crash structure. It's designed to sort of the level that you'd expect to see from a bus, so that's fine. Uh, the rural VLR is lighter than... Like, it is less crashworthy than a 153, or at least it's not designed to the... <laughs> The thing is, it satisfies some standards that the 153 didn't, because the 153 was pre all the, the, the kind of 1993 rolling stock standards. But it's also, it is lighter. It's designed to be lighter weight. So there, there, there are some compromises in places, but it does have a better crashworthiness structure than the 153 does in terms of the cab structure. You know, it's better than an HST. I'd rather be in, a, I'd, I'd rather be in a, an urban VLR at 125 miles an hour than an HST, frankly. Um, not that it can reach 125 miles an hour, but anyway. So there is, there, there, but they're they're just they've been clever. Let's say clever. Let's be or, or cute with the way they've applied crashworthiness standards, in collaboration with the ORR and the RSSB. You know, they, they, and they're trying to do it in order to to maximise the lightness and, and, and aim for that. Uh, they've managed about one and a half tons per meter, but they're aiming for the one ton a meter uh, sort of uh, approach, which is you know kind of an interesting logic, uh, pulling us back, as I said in the previous episode, back towards the old, back towards timber framed trains in terms of mass. Um, Nathan L, is the selling point of VLR the new track form? From your vid, they seem pretty protective of it. Yeah, um, for urban VLR, the track form is quite interesting. Yeah, uh, the logic of that is to is to is to attempt to minimise the depth of excavation, and therefore you don't need to move services out of the way. The thing that confounded that is then later in the discussion in in the in the room in the conference room. All of the utilities people said, yeah, but we still want our utilities moving, at which point it's like, well, isn't that kind of all the expense anyway? So does that not mean everything that just costs the same anyway? So I'm a little bit like, oh, the track system is interesting, but the utility, it sounds like the whole point of it was to avoid utility diversions, and it sounds like they're not wanting to go with that. Because I thought the point of this lightweight system was that essentially you take a piece out. If you want to do utility works, you can essentially just take the piece out and do the work there and put it back in. Uh, but the utility companies aren't buying that. So there's a bit of a battle to be had with the utilities companies here, I think. Um, JK is asking, could a VLR be built through Woodhead? No. Uh, would a West Yorkshire VLR work? Well, uh, no. West Yorkshire d- justifies a full metro system, like full heavy rail metro system, let alone a lighter system. But but like a full blast metro system is what West Yorkshire, anything less than that, whether it's tram or whatever, is, is, not, is not really cutting it. So... Uh, no, I think West Yorkshire and, and Leeds and Bradford merit. This is just way too low capacity. The the the, the urban VLR system is just way too low capacity for it. Uh, uh, right, Raphael. Uh, oh, everyone's it is Sirencester. That's what I thought, Gareth. Yeah. Uh, gosh, this has changed. Blah blah blah. Shifted. R- Raphael. To answer my own question, the mine cart was from a book called uh, Dere Metallica on the nature of metals from 1556, apparently by a German. Uh, thanks, Raphael. Yeah, lovely. Uncritical Simon. Late, but I can't see how rural VLR even allows higher frequencies. This surely doubles requires double track. Uh, well, it, it allows higher frequency because of the rev, the cost of run, theoretically the cost of running it. If it's cheaper to run then yeah but you know we need to see the cost of running i I don't see how it'll actually be 
cheaper to run because it's lighter does it actually require that much less fuel you know the actual running costs is it that much cheaper i'm not saying it shouldn't like that's still the there are no alternatives for that type of train at the moment there is no one building a 153 equivalent so fine but uh i don't you know I, yeah uh, yeah kind of agreed uh if we want Fixed infrastructure to drive modal shift. What about trolley buses? Yep, very good point. I'd be interested to speak to Kevin Tennant about trolley buses and, and driving uh, modal shift, actually. That's a very good question. Uh, Sirin Sester, everyone's saying Sirin Sester, good. Uh, the VLR trains are non-articulated single-car trains. Is there much sense in such rail vehicles, or should modern passenger trains rather be articulated, as in made up of two cars? Well, it depends what you're trying to achieve, really. The point of that is that it's small. It's, it's for small volumes, uh, and potentially they can hook up to then run uh, you know kind of continue running but also it's a very good point because if you've got two tra- if you've got those two trains it means that you're actually running twice the number of staff you need if you've got a, a, a staff member on each train twice the number of staff you need in each vehicle if you're then joining them at a certain point compared to if you yeah so there's a bit of but then you'd have double the number of staff on the fringes if you had yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, you'd still double the staff if you had two articulate trains. Yeah, I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, it's very much wait and see on some of this stuff. It might go away, but I'm just sort of throwing things out there for us all to think about. Um, let's go down here. Uh, door hanger ninety three. The thing I don't really get is why the VLR tram wastes so much space on a second cab when turning loops are very common internationally and they designed uh, in very tight turning. Yeah very good point i think that's just a lack of i think that's a little bit of a non-rail people situation uh, i think they're trying to be clever but actually it's just a bit yeah it doesn't make any sense i agree there should be one unidirectional uh da, 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 da. uh remy uh, is asking uh, remy uh well the, the emphasis on the e so is it remy or remy uh cardona is asking correct me on that i'm very sorry if i'm mispronouncing do you know of any company research institution actually working on virtual coupling platooning uh yeah warwick are in theory uh warwick whatever they are motoring manufacturing group are, are attempting it whether it actually becomes real is yeah another question sounds like utility companies don't want to be held liable for derailments and it's not about derailments it's just they don't want to they, they want to be able to access their assets as quickly and as easily as possible without spending an extra penny more than they need to what about an electric version of the vlr uh well the 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 poddy one, the, the the urban one is battery. The rural one, yeah, it'd be interesting if they could put a pantograph on it. Yeah, I don't know. Possibly. That, the whole point is that it's low infrastructure cost. So if it's over, over, electrified, then the chances are it's intensive. So you need a bigger vehicle anyway. So there's no point. Uh, Maxwell Faffage, uh, in your opinion, could rural VLR run on lines that are currently only used for infrequent freight, e.g. quarrying lines? I think that's one of the considerations. It's one of the possibilities, yeah. Um, Martha's pointing out that the principal cost is driver and conductor that doesn't change unless you start looking at proof of payment systems which isn't really tied to vehicle tech yeah absolutely um, uh, David Shepard how easy is it to park units along the length of a rural VLR or urban VLR so you could couple things up for peak hours uh, park units along the length of a rural uh, oh I, I'm not quite sure what you mean David um SB trains, planes, and drives. Uh, with platooning, what happens with an engine failure? It can't have one tow the other one virtually. Yeah, if you've got a battery failure, how on earth does that work? The whole, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it's pronounced Siami. Lovely, thank you, Matteo. Warwick Manufacturing Group, WMG. Yeah, thanks. Uh, the urban poddy one could also be trolley uh, tramwire power. Yeah, theoretically. 
Uh, right, there was a question in, like, a couple of questions on here. See if we've covered, so this is on the comments in the previous video. So, um, do I expect that rural VLR will mostly be used to enable new lines to open on marginal passenger numbers or to reduce operating costs on existing lines? I think it's only going to be useful on lines that have, um, that exist already, where you don't have to reinstate them. So it's, it's a case of reducing the need for major infrastructure upgrades where the line, a mothballed line exists or a freight-only line exists. It, it's not going to work for new lines because you basically, you, you, there's, there's no particular benefit to, to running this over another um, another type of service. And, and to be honest, if you're building a new railway line that, that, from new entirely, um, to justify doing that, you need to have the numbers that a larger train would pull anyway. Uh, next one. Some existing line. This is from Stevie and Selby. Uh, some existing lines uh, where I can imagine uh, RVLR being used would be Tamar Valley, Lou Valley, Heart of Wales, Borderlands, potentially. But the thing is, Borderlands, and some of these are all, Borderlands, for example, is, 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 is going to become a high-intensity metro line fairly soon. So, meh. Um, how does the less stringent crashworthiness standard fare when it operates in mixed traffic on mainlines? Yeah, fair point. I, mixed feelings. It'd be interesting to put that question to them because I think there are some balances of of, of improvements, less improvement. Yeah. Um, uh, what else? Uh, there's another question here. Uh, ah, questions. Two questions from um, from VT eighteen point sixteen. Uh, does this necessarily need to pass certain uh, EN regulations, as it does not strike confidence that the tiny anticlimbers uh, would actually do anything when coming into contact with, like a loaded lorry, or is it relaxed regulation exceptions? basically the that's a bit of a convoluted question but basically this is a bit of a hybrid of crashworthiness standards to, to kind of there's a bit of an optimized approach which i think is fair enough you know picking and choosing things that they feel like are valid uh fair enough um i think they need to it needs to be stress test it has a proper robust safety case and that would change depending on what lines it was running on and amongst what it was running with the running gear seems to be a freight bogey correct yep with a with a yaw damper attached uh yes it is a freight uh it is indeed a freight bogey uh these were equipped on heavy coal wagons originally. It raises many running uh, questions on running characteristics, especially when the VLR is so very light. It could be worse than a one two one bubble car or class one five three. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, I'll close that. That's, 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 that's the questions I've got um, from that. Oh, uh, virtual coupling is just is just fiction. Yeah, uh, it doesn't exist. Uh, David Shepard, how will rural VLR and urban VLR cope with the surge in demand during peak hours? open question uh, rural vlr theoretically will run more intensively to deal with peaks that's that's sort of a logic and i can i can say that fair enough i think that could work um but uh urban vlr sorry rural vlr doesn't it's just it's just it's just a train it's a regular train and deal with it in the same way that ours doesn't it might you might run a double a double service for a couple of hours at peak time um Maxwell Faffage, uh, re-utility companies accessing utilities, they have to block access uh, with local with local authorities to dig up roads anyway. So surely it's the call of the local authorities, not utility companies. Well, quite. Um, oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, campaign for Northeast Rail. I forgot to mention my starring role for the promo vid for the Campaign for Northeast Rail. Go and click on the link. Click on the Campaign for Northeast Rail's YouTube channel link that's now in the chat. And come, there's a video where I'm in there. And I think I was, I, I was lending them my voice. Um, and also hinting at in the previous video CNER, you'll notice I was hinting at I was hinting at your proposals anyway. Right, um, that is those. I can only all it remains for me to do is to go over to is to say um, thanks to everyone uh, listening in audio only form. I, I don't know how well this has worked. Thanks for the, the people coming for the Q and A there at the end. Um, any other questions you can chat me on Twitter uh, or pop in the comments underneath and I'll maybe reply underneath here. Um, yeah, uh, thanks for, the, for all that. Uh, patreon.com slash gaff dennis for patreon uh to to support to make more of this happen and to keep me uh, to keep this 
being a thing. PayPal.me slash Gareth Dennis for, for loose change and abuse. And GarethDennis.co.uk slash Discord for the chat continuing forever and ever. Um, I haven't posted a link, David Shepard. I just said Campaign for North East Rail have just posted a comment. Uh, so click on them and you'll get to their page, I think. I think that's how YouTube works. Um, Masquette, if you're out there, I don't know where you are. Um, I hope you're all right. But your, your website's down and uh, I, I, yeah, I haven't heard from you for months. So hopefully you're all right. But if anyone knows if Masquette are all right, um, then uh, give me a shout. But I hope they're all right. Um, anyway. Oh, uh, what next? Oh, yeah, next... No, no, firstly, not next week. Uh, just a reminder to everyone that the Archipelago series has kicked back off again. Uh, we've had two episodes so far, um, 56 and 57, in, 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 in kind of part two of the series. Um, and not next week, but the week after, probably on Monday, is the next episode, episode 58, which is Aviation Takes Off. Ooh, what might that mean is happening? But uh, there's a nice picture of a, of a rather fat-looking aircraft flying over uh, Shildon there. Uh, our, our fairly busy second city of the of the main capital of, of our collection of islands in Amphitros. Anyway, that's that. And uh, next week, excitingly, uh, Alice is joining us. Alice Caldwell-Kelly, Alice Avazanimov of Twitter, is joining us to talk about uh, a collection of railway watches and where to find them. This is a working title. It might change depending on what we end up creating. But um, uh, we're recording that on Friday because it's a pre-record because I'm on holiday next week. But uh, that's episode one, two, three, quite pleasingly. So it's quite a fun one for Alice to be on. Anyway, Alice is joining us. Hooray! It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Um, recording with Alice. I have the pleasure of being on lots of Alice's shows, and uh, and it, it's just always a lot of fun. Alice is a very naturally funny uh, presenter. She is a... Yes. Uh, strong recommend of going and listening to everything that Alice does. Uh, well, it's a problem podcast, Trash Future, Kill James Bond. All good fun. And... Only remains after that is to bring my large noggin back up and say, um, everyone. Oh, oh, oh. That was all right. It's uh, it's an hour and a half of rail natter. It's enough for me to shut up. Everyone's run off because the episode's ended, obviously. Uh, it only remains for me to say thanks, everyone, for joining, um, particularly to um, the, the, the Pangborn family. Hello. Hello, Kate and, and, and family. Um, and and I'll, see, I'll see everyone. Uh, I'll, it's a pre-record next week. I'll see the week after, which should be a fun one as well. It'll be a live one. And it's with a guest, another guest. Ooh, who will it be, though? Um, I will see you all later. Cheerio! Cheerio! Thank you.